I've heard that there is a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. And we might ask, why would that be considered a curse? Interesting times? Sounds like, well, at least interesting. And I think we could say that even now we live in interesting times. But I think what it's pointing to is the fact that there are times in human life when the forces at play in the world are tumultuous, in transition, unpredictable. And I think that if we look around the world today, both environmentally, uh, economically, politically, socially, religiously, uh, there is a tremendous amount of ferment and the unsettling of the old order of things and a new order has not emerged. And it's quite apparent to all of us, not only the people living in the Middle East now or living anywhere, it's very apparent to us that our life is impacted by things, a lot of things that we have no control over. We are pawns on the big board of life. And we do the best we can, but there's no guarantee that we or anyone else or any of the, well, institutions or the way of life that we know it is going to, well, be what we want in the future. So we could say, during these interesting times, fear, insecurity, instability, unknown transition are at play in the world, in our personal lives, in our political lives, in our organizational lives. And that's not easy to be with. While we all wish for the best, we all want to live a life of abundance, we all want a lot of uh, pleasure instead of pain, we want to be at least recognized, we want the, 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 the beneficial side of life. But just as the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people living in northern Japan discovered or were reminded six or eight months ago, all that we do to ensure our life, our happiness, our security, our physical security, financial security, family security, the, all that we do can be wiped out, well, instantly. And we're not immune to a tsunami rolling through our life either. It may not be a tidal tsunami, but it can be an economic tsunami, it can be a health tsunami, it can be a uh, personal tsunami. And our life gets upended. Tremendous upheaval that there's no way to prevent, no way to predict, no way to ensure. So we're living in interesting times. Now, if you had been living in northern Japan earlier this year, and the tsunami came rolling through your life, when the waters receded enough to look around, who would you hope to see? Who would you want to be around to help you stabilize, feel good, get to the task at hand, 
to share the next phase of your journey with. Well, we've been talking about the paramis over the last several days, developing the qualities of generosity, kindness, energy, understanding, patience, renunciation, living in harmony within and without. I would want to look for people that had those qualities because it's clear that human society thrives, flourishes when the paramis are recognized, developed, acknowledged, strengthened, valued, and in creating a new social order after any tsunami, we would want as much access within ourselves and within our acquaintances, our neighbors of the paramis as we could get. As much security, as much happiness, as much pleasure, as much comfort as the citizens of northern Japan had. Their sense of well-being did not depend on that. Their sense of well-being after the waters receded didn't depend on whether they had a new car, a new house, money in the safe before the tsunami. It would depend on how much development of paramis they had in their heart. Because a sense of well-being is within ourself. The source of a sense of well-being is within our own heart. Yes, let's acknowledge there is a minimum physical requirement of you know, safety, security, finances, beyond which more doesn't provide more well-being. We could say that the development of the paramis in our own life is, uh, the, are the contingency plans for the inevitable trouble ahead. It should not come as any surprise to us when the tsunami rolls through our life. It, it, we can't say we weren't warned, we weren't notified. We've all been put on notice. Now what can we do about it? What can we do to prepare, really? And we can see, as we have practiced here this week, as we've heard, as we've really reflected, without the development of the paramis, very fragile sense of well-being. When we look down the list of the paramis, we can see that, well, they're not particularly Buddhist. They're not particularly even spiritual. They're not esoteric. They're not even exotic. They're not remote. They're not distant. They are so common and so ordinary and so mundane, we can overlook them as being significant players in our life. And yet, we see that while we do have some capacity for generosity, living in harmony, renunciation, and understanding, we also see that there's room for development. But these forces, or these qualities of heart, do not develop within our mind, within our heart, accidentally. And they don't develop just because we think, oh, that's a good idea. 
even as we sit here this week, we can see how hard it is to remember to be patient when in pain, to let go of what's causing us suffering in our heart. It's really hard. You know, these, these forces in our mind are powerful, but their opposition or the other forces in our mind that, well, have hindered, prevented, obstructed their development are also powerful. Can any of us say that we haven't seen how deeply conditioned our mind is to be unhappy? We've seen it. That's the challenge. That's the, that's the work that we're looking at in this opening of our heart, deconditioning the unskillful, unwise habits of mind, and cultivating the forces of goodness or the paramis and bringing them into our life. And just like any physical muscle in the body, if we exercise it, if we train it, it will get stronger. And it will be of use to us, not only when we're in the gym doing our reps, but when needed in life to do essential physical things. So too with our heart. If we undertake the formal practices, train our heart to be more generous, more loving, more patient, more balanced, then those qualities of mind will be there for us when needed. So we can see, we have the potential, we have the value, we see the need. Do we really value these qualities in our life? And before you rush to say, why yes, of course, let me remind you what's involved. <laughs> yes, we value these qualities in our life. But one of the qualities is equanimity, balanced mind, non-reactivity. We live in a society that is polarized and the discourse, well, what discourse there is between the ends of the spectrum is shrill, opinionated and partisan, as far from equanimity as you can get. Do we value equanimity? Do we value balance? Do we value the middle path, even the middle way? How about the middle of the discourse? Or another of the qualities is uh, truthfulness. Now, I'm not going to shame any of you by asking you how many have taken and made a pledge to yourself and possibly publicly that you will always tell the truth. I'm not asking for a show of hands. And if you haven't, are you a liar? It's an either or. Okay, so truthfulness, when it's convenient, is tolerated, expected, hoped for in our society and in our interpersonal relationships. And it serves us fairly well, but maybe not well enough to free our heart from suffering. We live in a society that accepts, condones, tolerates, expects deception. Deception. Whether it's coming from Washington, D.C., or what's the capital of Canada? Ottawa? Yeah. Or whether it's coming from Wall Street, or Hollywood, or 
Well, anywhere else. We expect. Is there anybody that believes what they hear? No. We have been trained. We've been conditioned to accept deception. The cost of deception to us individually and to our society is immense. The loss of faith, the loss of trust, cynicism, skepticism. These are expensive financially and otherwise uh, results of tolerating deception. So when we say, yeah I, yeah, I value the paramis in my life, I'd like to have more of them and I'd like to develop them, we are going to have to confront our personal cultural conditioning, meaning we're going to be going against the flow of society. Are you prepared for that? Is there any other option? Dharma practice, you know, the Buddha said, the Dharma practice is like swimming against the stream. It's like swimming against the stream. It's not going with the flow. It's swimming against the flow. Because the flow goes towards suffering, as we can see. So, the challenge for us is how to develop a lifestyle, a dharma lifestyle of living the paramis. And understanding that it is a gradual development based on our energy, commitment, and interest. To do that takes practice. As we can see, these forces, these qualities are not within our heart. Sure, sometimes they arise spontaneously. Sometimes we feel good about acting kind to those who are giving us trouble, spontaneously being generous. Uh, you know, we, we feel good about that. But the challenge is in extending ourselves, remembering that the Bodhisattva made these qualities of heart the default setting of his mind the first quality to arise in challenging situations, rather than the last thing we try. When the Buddha shared his understanding of the way to view life, in order to be free of suffering. He articulated his understanding, realization, in the teaching called the Four Noble Truths. Are they academic truths? Are they scientific truths? Is not so important. Because what he said is, if you can see things this way, you can be free of suffering. We have to remember when we listen to the Buddhist teachings and when we undertake the Buddhist practices that the Buddha was concerned with suffering and the end of suffering, that's it. If you want to know metaphysical truths and scientific answers, the Buddha was not so concerned because, as he said, you could talk, investigate, argue forever and you'll never reach the answer to all of the questions you can come up with. And all that while, you're still suffering. So he said, he was concerned with suffering and the end of suffering, and that's it. So if we ask more of understanding suffering and the end of suffering out of the Buddhist teachings, we can get distracted. We can lose our track, we can lose our focus, we can lose our direction, misplace our aspiration, do a lot of wonderful Buddhist things, and still suffer the whole way. Okay. So what did the Buddha teach, anyway? As you know, Four Noble Truths, we all should know them by now. 
you know, first noble truth, second noble truth, third noble truth. First noble truth is what? Truth of dukkha. Yeah. And we know what dukkha is. You know, pain had some of that. Uh, insecurity, vulnerability, kind of things change, things don't stay the same, and that causes us to be darn. Well, seen some of that. A subtler form of dukkha that the Buddha pointed to, you know, we have these six sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Being constantly stimulated all the time. You can't shut it up. You can't, you can close your eyes and you'll still see. Close your ears and you'll still hear. You know, and how are you going to shut off feeling sensations in the body and the mind? It's incessant. Did anybody find a quiet mind yet? You know what? And we have to bear with it. That, if we could really <laughs> cop to it, if we could really just kind of get down to the way it really is, that's oppressive. <laughs> and there's no relief from our ordinary way of living. We're born, our parents doing as best they can, you know, um, feed us, bathe us, coo us, love us, educate us, try to get us to sleep, you know, and, and try, to be, try to make us happy because if we're not happy, they're not happy. Right? And as soon as they can, they start entraining your siblings and their, their parents to help train us. And eventually, after a few years, we learn. We get, we get it. We get it. We're on our own. <laughs> now we have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of this body. We have to take care of this mind. We have to feed this body, bathe this body, groom this body, take this body to the bathroom, and entertain it every day. You, know, you can't get somebody to do it for you. Your parents did it for a few years. Now it's up to you. And, and you have to do this. You know, if you don't take, if you don't bathe for a week, dukkha. <laughs> right? Social dukkha, personal dukkha, physical dukkha, mm, dukkha, more dukkha. So you have to do it. And the body is the easy part. We have this mind. You know, we have to keep it satisfied. We have to keep it entertained. We have to keep it, you know, tantalized. We have to keep it, you know, kind of busy. We have to keep it distracted, because if we don't, it's just like being on a retreat your whole life. You know, nothing to do, not keep it. Dukkha. Okay. And we have to do that. And we have to do, take care of this body and this mind for, well, as you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, some of us seven, soon to be eight, decades, and we have to take care of it every day, like that. Right? It's a full-time job. I mean, what, a, what else do we do? We just try to keep this body and mind going, going along, kind of as dukkha-free as possible, although not very successfully. At the end of all of our efforts, what happens? As you know. <laughs> We put on our best suit, lay in a box, and get put in a hole in the ground. <laughs> and that's it. It's like the end. You know, some people would say, bad investment. <laughs> because, <laughs> okay, dukkha, it's pretty clear. The Buddha, the Buddha was relentless. This is the truth of dukkha. Now let's face it, if all we're doing is carrying this body and mind as comfortably as we can, happily to the grave, we are wasting our time. We're just wasting our time. We're just dissipating, not making a benefit out of this precious human life. Because we have the guidance. We have the instruction. We have the encouragement. We have the reminders. We have the opportunity to learn how to free this mind from suffering. All of that I mentioned, all that dukkha that I just mentioned, we have the opportunity. 
This is what the Buddha learned. How to free the mind from all this dukkha. That's what the Buddha is offering us, the Buddha's teaching. So he said, this second noble truth, this, this dukkha, is caused by craving. Craving in the form of holding on, hanging on, wanting, desire, indulgence, infatuation, all those. Being identified with our bodies, being identified with our minds, being identified with our partners, our finances, our job, our career. All of that is attachment. Now, craving, cause of dukkha. You know, I, I have had this assumption for a long time in my life. If I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that sound right? If I can just get what I want, then I'll be happy. If I can just get the job I want, the finance I want, the house I want, the partner I want, the kids I want, the, you know, everything. If I can just get what I want, then I'll be happy. The satisfaction that comes from getting what you want is so brief, so quick, so fleeting, we hardly taste it before it's no longer satisfying. Of course, there's some level of, you know, we learn to tolerate less than perfect satisfaction. Okay. And, but it erupts every once in a while when we take a cl closer look and we see <coughs> what I really need is another, <laughs> another. But the Buddha did say, say and discovered and offered as a, a teaching the third noble truth which says, there is the end of craving. And the end of craving means the end of dukkha. It's possible. It's possible. I'll speak more about that. And then the fourth noble truth is there's a way to reach, there's a way to uh, develop a path to the end of craving. And this is the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is what we have actually been practicing here. Practicing purifying our speech and behavior by the precepts, uh, purifies our speech and behavior from acting in such a way that causes harm to others, allows us to live in harmony with one another, and that's a source of happiness for us. He also taught awareness training, mindfulness training, to begin to get a handle on our obsessive thinking that causes, well, if you haven't noticed, let me tell you, about all of our suffering. So much of our suffering is just obsessive thinking. Fear and anxiety and depression and upsetness and envy and jealousy and, you know, insecurity. Our thoughts, obsessive thoughts. When we train in mindfulness, we learn how to arrest those thoughts or how to keep them at bay. How to temporarily put aside those defiling thoughts. This is a great relief too. It's temporary, it's brief, but it's a relief. And the fourth practice, or the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path is to purify our understanding because things constantly change. Conditions in our life are constantly changing. And while we may be able to be mindful in this situation, we may not be mindful in the next. And so we really need to look more closely, in a more refined way, at what is causing the suffering. The suffering of our obsessing thoughts is caused by wrong understanding. We don't understand things correctly. We understand them wrongly. And so it's through the practice of insight, or vipassana, that we can begin to purify our understanding. Beginning to see, oh, this is the way it is in the body. This is the way it is in the mind. This is the way it is, cause and effect. This is the way it is, impermanent and otherwise. 
well, this is the way it is. And in the process of gaining this knowledge, we learn to live from this knowledge. Just, just to have that knowledge up in your head, that's good book. That's good book knowledge. But it doesn't do anything to make your life less suffering. Or very little, I should say. It's when we imbibe it, when we grow it in here, in our heart, that we begin to live the truth of impermanence. We begin to live the truth of dukkha with that knowledge, with that understanding. Then our understanding changes. We begin to understand things correctly. Then we're, we're, we're protected from the source of suffering. I want to speak more about this wisdom of the Four Noble Truths, but I want to wrap up this speaking about the paramis by saying that, you know, all of the paramis are practices of the Noble Eightfold Path. All of them. You know, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right energy, right mindfulness, right concentration, right view, right thought. Those are the Eightfold Path factors. Generosity, right action. Morality, or living in harmony. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Renunciation, right thought. Let go, let go, let go. Wisdom, right view, right thought. Energy, right effort. Patience, right speech, right behavior, right action. Truthfulness, right speech. Resolve, the one I spoke about the other night. Right speech, right action, right view, right thought. Loving kindness, right thought. Equanimity, right view. All of these paramis are in fulfillment of the Eightfold Path factors. They're also all mindfulness practices. We can't practice any of them without paying attention, without remembering. Mindfulness has the function of remembering. That's it. Mindfulness remembers. Without mindfulness or without we don't remember. Without remembering, no mindfulness. One of the important things in our life is to remember the paramis as an option. How many times in a day do you have the opportunity to choose patience if you could only remember? Right? We forget. We forget that patience is an option. Mindfulness remembers. That's why mindfulness, that's why all of the paramis are mindfulness practices. And they're all practices, all of the paramis are practices for the development of happiness. Now, it's not always easy to practice generosity or truthfulness or the precepts and be happy. We feel fearful, we feel anxiety, we feel regretful. And so it takes practice to learn, it takes understanding to know how to practice the paramis and have them be a source of happiness to us. It's not immediately obvious sometimes. Actually, the understanding in Burma, actually the understanding in all of Buddhist teachings is that the paramis are householders' practices of preparing the soil of the mind for liberation. In Burma, householders, they practice the paramis as their everyday practice. But they go on retreat, every, not, not everyone, but the ones that I'm familiar with, they go on retreat for a month or two every year to see what the depth of their freedom, their liberation is. And our liberation is dependent on the development of the paramis. The more we develop the paramis, the more understanding we have, the deeper the liberation. The more refined, I should say, the more refined the liberation of the mind. It's not a, it's not a distraction, it's not a detour, it's not a lesser practice to take up any of the paramis. It is the very foundation of liberation. At a recent retreat a couple years ago, one yogi 
said at the end of the retreat, I want to live a life of awareness. I don't want to live a retreat lifestyle. I get it. I don't want to live a retreat lifestyle either. But I would like the benefit, and we see, even after a week, we see the benefit of living a really Dharma-infused lifestyle. We pay attention. We're more aware. We're more open. We're more loving. We're more... We see our other, the other side of stuff, too. We see the work that we're doing. But we can see that even in six, seven days, the heart can really go through some changes. Now imagine, you do that for a year. Just, just live a more Dharma lifestyle for a year. If seven days does this, 365 will do what? And some of us still have a decade or two left in life. Some of us have more than that. Transformation through Dharma practice, through even Parami practice, of our entire life is not remote. It's not far away. It's not like, well, if I ever get the time. We have the time. 24 hours a day. It's not that we can't do anything else if we're developing the paramis. It's we can develop the paramis as we do everything else. They're not so separate from our life. So I want to speak about this wisdom parami. We've spoken about most of the other paramis. We've spoken about generosity, uh, morality, living in harmony, renunciation, energy, uh, we mentioned patience, resolve, loving-kindness. When we talk about wisdom, parami, we're talking about understanding. There are two factors in the development of wisdom. Right view and right thought. We could say right understanding and right intention. You know, if you have the right understanding, and you make the right intention, then you'll act wisely. When I say right view, right belief, right understanding, what is it that we need the right understanding of? Primarily, there are two broad areas. The first is we need a skillful understanding of the law of karma. Karma says actions have consequences. Actions have what you think, what you speak, and what you do physically produces or conditions certain results. And the results, the law of karma says, is determined by the motivation or the intention of the action. If the intention is one of being kind, generous, coming from understanding, then the action, the words that we speak, the thoughts that we have, the actions that we take, will condition a pleasant result. Now there's no guarantee that what we do with a wholesome intention is going to produce the result we want, because there are so many factors so many causes and conditions involved in everything, we can't control them all. But the one that we can control, that we have some say over, is karma. What is the intention with which we're acting? The corollary of that is if we're careless and we're acting out of self-need, self-greed, self-enhancement, self-aggrandizement, I mean, non non-generosity, non-loving-kindness, non-understanding. It's no surprise. It should be no surprise to us that the result will be unpleasant. Look, the law of karma is not remote. If you think back over the day or the week and you remember, recall, some of those some, of the, some incident from your personal history 
that, that came up this week and caused you suffering. You know, you remember something you said when you were 15 or, you know, decades ago. You remember something and you can feel it. You just feel how painful it is to recall that. And you feel, well, you feel regretful, you feel remorseful, you feel the pain of it. You hope you never do that again, thankfully, hopefully. Nobody's punishing you. There's no karmic police out there that's going to punish you for unskillful karmic acts. It's our own heart, it's our own mind that feels the pain. This is the law. I mean, it's, nobody's making it up. We can observe it. We could say that the law of karma is what has been observed by those who's paid, who have paid that kind of attention. So we see, you know, the pain that we feel, the pain that we discover in our awareness is what we've inherited from our previous actions. We've done plenty unskillful stuff had a lot of wrong thoughts, wrong beliefs, wrong intentions, carelessness, and, well, it comes back. And it makes us unhappy, makes us painful. We experience it. You know, as Kamala was saying, and the law of karma and equanimity are intimately tied together because we are heirs of our karma we get to inherit, we inherit the results of our prior karmic actions. This is not all bad. After all, we're all here. We're listening to the Dharma, we're having a chance to practice the Dharma. This is good. This is a good result. This is a result of wholesome actions in the past. Okay. If we want to suffer less in the future, we have the opportunity to create conditions for less suffering by acting with wisdom and kindness and generosity and understanding any and all of the paramis, planting seeds of wholesomeness sure to result in pleasant experience in the future. We are kind of co-architects. Yes, we live in a society, we live in a civilization, we live in an environment that we have to deal with. These are givens. They change, but they're givens. You know, the weather that we experience is not karmic. The political system we experience is not karmic. There's other causes and conditions producing that. Our experience of them, karmic. The law of karma, karma, having a right understanding, a skillful understanding of the law of karma is essential. It encourages us to practice awareness. It encourages us to practice all of the paramis because they're wholesome, they're skillful, and they are sure to lead to, well, less suffering in the future, now and in the future. The second right view is the view from insight practice. In the development of awareness, we pay attention to the body and the mind. We see, oh, this is the way it is. The body feels like this, the mind feels like that. In the course of paying attention, we see karma unfold. We also discover that experientially, in our immediate experience, that's all there is, body and mind. The mind experiencing the body, the body and the mind experiencing the mind. We use all the foils of other people and things outside of us in the environment, but when you close your eyes and you go into your inner world, 
It's all our body, our mind, and feelings. And that's what we, that's, that's the terrain. That's where we learn everything. How is it that paying attention to momentary arisings in the body and mind leads to the end of suffering? How does that happen? How, how is it that all this suffering that we know of in our life and have experienced, how can just paying attention to this moment, moment by moment, relieve, free us from that? The third noble truth, as the Buddha said, is there is an end to craving, meaning there is an end to suffering. Our practice here, this week, is directly aimed at this point. So I want to speak about how our practice here, this week, has revealed to each one of us the end of suffering that comes from awareness. One way that we experience the end of suffering Somewhere this past week, did you have the experience of, well, wandering off in thought, not aware of it, getting entangled in some old memory, some old plan, some anxiety, some fear, getting really wound up for a minute, two, five, thirty, whatever, and suddenly coming out of it and being mindful? Thank goodness we had that moment of mindfulness. Otherwise, we might still be there. <laughs> entangled in that, well, f suffering fantasy. Right? Just by paying attention, we, well, we see how holding on to, well, obsessive thinking, painful thinking, causes us to suffer. We may not know it at the time, but we certainly feel effects afterwards. When I first started practicing, I've, I've told this a few times, when I first started practicing, it was soon after I got out of university. When I went to the university, I was studying engineering, back in the time before handheld calculators, you know, when you did all your math with a slide rule, and a lot of mental calculations in the gray matter. And so I took, you know, years of uh, advanced mathematics to, to do this engineering. And so I was really good at mentally calculating, multiplying, dividing, and doing all that. Well, when I went on retreat and my mind wandered, you know where my mind wandered? Very complex mathematical calculations. And I'd find my, I'd come to finding myself multiplying out four and five digit numbers in my head, trying to do, 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 do. And I'd say, I'd notice that, and go, do I need to be doing this right now? <laughs> Whew, I'm glad I started mindfulness practice. I would have solved all the mathematical problems in the world by now if I hadn't, but I wouldn't have known because I was wandering mind. So just becoming aware of our mental habits frees us from a tremendous amount of holding on that we don't even know we're doing. And when you let go, even in one instant, you're hanging on to some fantasy, some memory, some plan, some ache, some calculation, and you go, oh, what a relief. There's a moment of physical, mental relief that is dukkha-free. Dukkha-free zone. It may be quick, <laughs> but it's real. We get a taste, right? Okay, now imagine that we are noticing that holding and letting go fairly consistently. You know, we really build up a momentum. Let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Where's the obsessive thinking? It doesn't get a chance to arise. Huh? All of the hindrances get put aside through the continuity of mindfulness. And it's the hindrances, you know, greed, aversion, upsetness, anxiety, fear, doubt, you know, it's the, the hindrances that cause us so much suffering. And when they're put aside temporarily because of the momentum of mindfulness, sustained dukkha-free zone, right? 
Okay. In time, all of the factors of, uh, of awakening, the seven factors of awakening, energy, investigation, joy, along with calm, concentration, and equanimity, balanced by mindfulness, really mature. And when these factors mature, of course, there's all the delight of joy. And joy is, well, dukkha-free. And then there's eventually the stability of equanimity, which is non-reactivity, non-aversion, non-attachment, non-passivity. What's wrong with that? Another dukkha-free, enduring dukkha-free experience, just through the development of equanimity. And it is when the mind is very balanced, when the mind is seeing things as they are from a very equanimous place, that insight arises. And as I've mentioned, the insight is of three kinds. We understand deeply, incontrovertibly, not just because it's a good idea, but because we see it in every moment, that everything is impermanent. Whatever arises only lasts for a split second and then it's gone. It's fleeting. No matter what it is, it is fleeting. When the mind sees this, the intuitive mind understands that nothing is worth holding on to. Not only nothing is worth holding on to, nothing can be held on to because it's not there long enough to hold. The mind understands this. It realizes it. It's not just thinking about it. It realizes. And when the mind realizes how impermanent everything is, it doesn't reach, it doesn't grasp, it doesn't hold, it doesn't even move towards anything. It's experiencing everything. And understanding that it is impermanent doesn't reach for it. And it is then that the mind can fall into the unconditioned. The unconditioned is Nibbana, the ultimate dukkha-free zone. It's possible. The second insight is the insight into dukkha. Remember everything I said about dukkha? Pain, insecurity, vulnerability, oppressiveness, all that. At some at the first, at the initial stages of practice, it's experienced as feelings, unpleasant feelings. Later in practice, when we have put aside the aversion to those feelings, we come to the understanding, oh, everything that arises is either painful, or it's un if it's pleasant, it's unstable and doesn't last long, or it's just oppressive in its incessant, recurring, arising. The mind understands this. It intuitively sees every moment through the lens of this is dukkha. This, is, this experience has the characteristic of dukkha. When something is painful or oppressive or unstable, the mind doesn't reach for it, doesn't grasp it, doesn't hang on to it as a source of security because it's unstable. It's painful. You don't reach for fire. You don't reach for something that's hot in order to feel comfortable, in order to feel stable. It's this understanding that everything that arises has the characteristic of dukkha that allows the mind to not reach, not grasp. Still experiencing everything, but not grasping anything. And again, it is through the doorway of the understanding of dukkha that the mind can realize the unconditioned. The unconditioned Nibbana is not caused by anything. It's not made of anything. The Buddha said it has no size, no shape, no color, no texture, no flavor. It's not describable, it's ineffable. Its characteristic is peace. 
peace, dukkha-free. The third insight, the third Vipassana insight is when we see that everything that arises, physical, mental, whatever arises, has no inherent enduring substance. It's just, it's like mist in the morning. It just evaporates instantly. It, it, it is insubstantial. It is uh, fleeting. It is uh, evanescent. It's like a champagne bubble. There's nothing there. It's, just, it's, a, it's a bubble of nothing. Well, when we see this quality or this characteristic of whatever is arising, whatever physical and mental phenomena is arising in the mind, and we see that it has this characteristic. How can we grab, why would the mind grab for, reach for, try to hold on to something that really isn't there? It's just an appearance. It's like, well, you know, it's like a rainbow in the sky. Colorful appearance due to causes and conditions. But really, there's nothing, that, there's not one of us in the room that is ever going to try to reach for a rainbow, right? Why? Because we know there's really nothing there. It's just an appearance due to conditions. Everything we experience in our mind is an appearance due to causes and conditions, just like a rainbow. In fact, there's nothing there. When the mind understands this, it doesn't reach, it doesn't cling, it doesn't grasp. And if there's no craving and no holding, there's no dukkha. Again, through this doorway of understanding, the mind can realize the unconditioned. The unconditioned, Nibbana, is the, 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 the goal, or it's the direction that the Buddha is pointing to in talking about the Third Noble Truth. Lack of hindrance, putting aside the hindrances is good. Noticing, obsessing mind with mindfulness and letting go is good. Developing of the seven factors is good. Developing insight is good. But it's the taste of the unconditioned that will confirm the end of suffering for you. That's why we practice. That's why we do what we do this week. That's why we pay attention. We want to see things as they really are. We want to see this body as it really is. We want to see this mind as it really is. We want to understand them correctly. Because it is through right view, right understanding, that we can, under, that we can access the unconditioned. It is wisdom that frees us from suffering. This Eightfold Path is to be developed. Everything we've done here, all of our practice, all of our efforts to be mindful, is the development of the Eightfold Path. In any moment, throughout any day of this retreat, there is not more that you could do to bring your heart closer to the realization of the truth. There's nothing you could do any better than this. What could you do? You were working on all of the Eightfold Path factors every moment of your efforts here. This is the way. This is the path to the end of suffering, as the Buddha pointed to. This practice will bring you to the right understanding of this body and this mind. And with it, the understanding of dukkha and the end of dukkha. The Buddha said and pointed out that the goal of this spiritual life is like the heartwood of a tree. He said, this holy life is led not for gains and abundance of anything. It's not for gaining honor or fame. It's not for gaining virtue. It's not for gaining concentration. It's not for gaining knowledge 
or even insight, but it is for the unshakable release of the mind. When the mind lets go unshakably and falls into the unconditioned, this, the Buddha said, is the essence of the holy life. It is the heartwood and the end of the holy life. Sometimes when we hear the teachings of the Third Noble Truth, the end of suffering, Nibbana, whatever you want to call it, we think, impossible, remote, only for those at the time of the Buddha. Got to go live in a cave as a monk or a nun for decades. Not so. That understanding is dependent on and conditioned by the development of the paramis in your life. And we can develop those paramis in the lifestyle that we live here now. It's not remote. It's not inaccessible. It's not only for those at another time, at the time of the Buddha, or monks and nuns living in caves or forests. It's for us in our homes, in our jobs, in our relationships, to develop the paramis, to prepare the soil of the heart for awakening. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.